Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. And kind of answer the question of what is the gospel? And what we found in exploring that question is that the gospel is more of a declaration or a proclamation of a truth than it is about heaven, hell, faith, and like doing a whole bunch of stuff to make sure that you get into heaven and not hell. And really what the gospel message is, quite simply, is this declaration that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is Lord and King over all things. And so this is quite simply what the gospel is. And oftentimes we confuse the gospel with our response. But what we do know about the gospel is that when someone would come to town and declare that Caesar is Lord, there was a response that had to be made. You had to either choose to worship and bow down and submit yourself under Caesar, or you had to rebel and die. That was kind of the choice. And so (laughs) the same is kind of true with our gospel, other than Jesus comes to us, and he kind of lets us know that we're already dead. He's like, hey, you're already dead, but because I'm Lord, because I'm King, I'm offering you life. If you would lay down your life for me. And so what we find is that in the gospel, there's a response. There's a response towards worship. And last week we talked about that this response towards worship, that the word worship means literally to bow, to bow down, to lay prostrate, um, to submit yourself under the rule of Jesus Christ. And so our worship is this form of kind of physical and spiritual submission to the lordship of who Jesus is, to the reality. And so we respond and worship. Now today we're going to talk about discipleship. And we're going to talk about how discipleship is also a response to this commandment, that not this commandment, but to this gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so if we look at discipleship and what discipleship was and what discipleship means in the New Testament, what we find is that to be a disciple means to submit yourself under the teaching of another. Oftentimes this was done in the context of a rabbi, and you'd go to a rabbi and you'd ask if you could be a part of that rabbi's yoke. And he, if you were good enough, he would allow you in. And he became your source for truth and life and guidance. And so you were basically saying, I'm going to submit myself to the teaching and authority of this other person. And you became that person's disciple. And so that's what it means to kind of become a disciple. Or this is what we mean when we're talking about discipleship. It's the submission which is an appropriate response to the gospel that Jesus Christ is king, right? If Jesus Christ is king, then the appropriate response would be to submit ourselves underneath his ruling, underneath his teaching, underneath his guiding. And so discipleship just makes sense. Now, an easier way to understand discipleship in the language that we're going to use here at Damascus Road, um, and I'm going to use these words kind of interchangeably, but the first set is invitation and challenge. What we find in discipleship is that there's a place where there's an invitation to come in. And then oftentimes, once you're invited in, there's a challenge to grow into the person that God has called you to be. The other words that we can use instead of invitation and challenge could be belong and become. That in discipleship, we want people to come in and feel a sense of belonging to where they can grow and become the people that God has called them to be. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning is this idea of invitation and challenge, what it means to be a disciple and what it means to belong and what it means to become. And we're going to see in Matthew chapter 4, if you want to turn there, 
this place where Jesus begins his ministry from a point of invitation, from a point of asking people to come and belong in relationship with him. And so it's Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. The text says this. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now a little bit of context here. Jesus is understood to be a Jewish rabbi at this time. And what Jewish rabbis would often have happen is that they would be able to kind of kind of publicly demonstrate their teaching ability and that they were be able to be seen as a wise teacher publicly. And what then would happen is that you'd have scholars of the Torah, scholars of the Old Testament, students that would want to subject themselves to being the disciple of that rabbi come and kind of apply to be a disciple of that rabbi. And that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is Jesus is starting his ministry, and he's starting his ministry unlike any other rabbi before. He's walking along the shore. And he sees two guys that are fishermen, which means that they're not scholars, which means that they're not seeking to be applied under Jesus' care. And he invites them in. He invites them to come and be disciples. This should catch the audience kind of off guard. Because this is not how disciples were made. This is not how this was supposed to go down culturally. Now we do see in other parts of the text, in other parts of the Bible, where people do come to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, I want to come and be your disciple. And Jesus is like, all right, come and follow me right now. And then there's a whole bunch of excuses that kind of pop up. One guy's like, no, 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 I need to go bury my father. Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to another city. It's, It's now or never, guy. We also see another situation where someone comes to him, wants to be Jesus' disciple. And Jesus is like, hey, go sell everything, get rid of everything, and then come follow me. And he's like, no, 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 I, I, don't, I don't think I can do that. But that's not the situation that happens here. What happens here is that there are not people applying to be Jesus' disciples. Instead, Jesus is going, and he's kind of fishing for his disciples with these fishermen. And the response is really profound. If we continue in the text, it says, immediately... They left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, they saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I don't know about you, but this is such a peculiar passage because, like, we read this and we're like, how are they able to just drop their nets and leave everything and follow Jesus? That seems crazy. Like, that just seems crazy to, to just say, well, I'm done today. I was working today, and now I'm leaving. This guy even leaves his father, which was a big deal back in this time period. But I think for us to understand what's going on here and why it was so compelling to go and follow Jesus, we have to understand just a little bit more cultural context of the day. And so back in this day, Studying the Torah, studying the Old Testament, especially the first five books of the Old Testament, was extremely, extremely important to the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people had gone into exile into Babylon. And when they had come out of that exile from Babylon, they had kind of made this vow that they were going to study the Word of God and that they were going to try and prevent any way possible on their own accord from being brought into any type of exile again. 
it's not working out super great. Rome has conquered them. They're not necessarily in exile, but they have occupation. And so they're still, for some reason, not quite doing it right. But from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they rediscover the word of God and they proclaim it out publicly and they read it out loud and Nehemiah and Ezra teach it to the people of Jerusalem and of Israel, there are these people who commit to studying it. And these people become rabbis and sages. And what they end up doing is they end up beginning to create schools within the synagogues, within the places of worship. They were schools. And in these schools, you would start attending school as a five-year-old child. And at, from the ages of five to ten, you would memorize the first five books of the Bible, word for word, memorized, five years old to ten years old. If you thought, you know, kindergarten through fifth grade was tough, I mean, just think about memorizing the first five books of the Bible, word for word. I mean, we're talking... You know, all the genealogies, pretty much about this much right here is what they memorized. And the way that they would memorize it is that they wouldn't read it and then memorize it, but they would read it because in chant form. Because the Word of God at that time is written in Hebrew, which has no vowels, which means that you don't really quite know how to pronounce each word unless you have somebody that's trained in reading the Torah. And so you'd have these people that were trained in reading it correctly, and the way that you were going to, to pass it from generation to generation was for them to have it memorized and to have it memorized correctly. And so they would just every day chant these passages and they would learn it. They would learn Hebrew. They would learn to read. A lot of people at this time were literate in the Hebrew language. They were not necessarily able to write, but they were able to read. And so this is what they would do from ages 5 to 10. Now, they would then go into a second form of schooling from 10 to 13, where they would then memorize the rest of the entire Old Testament as, as well as the oral tradition of the law. And then by age 13 is when that child became a man and oftentimes began the family trade. Now those who were really good, those that knew the law well, that knew the scripture well, who kind of were the, the best of the best in the class, they would then continue to go on and instead of apprentice their father, they would start going around to different kind of <laughs> assemblies with other best of the best kids and they would start talking about the law. And they would start talking about the word of God and they would start having discussions about it. And then they would start seeking out a rabbi. Once these kids thought that they were good enough to submit themselves under a rabbi, they would then go find a rabbi and ask that rabbi, hey, can I come and be a part of your yoke? That's what it was called to be a part of the disciple of the rabbi. The rabbi had a thing, and it was called his yoke. And so you would go to the rabbi and you'd say, rabbi, I would like to be a part of your yoke. And the rabbi would start grilling the student with questions, questions about Torah, questions about the Old Testament, questions about the oral tradition. And if that rabbi thought, you know, this kid got, has what it takes. And really what the, the main idea, the main question that the rabbi was asking himself when he was doing this kind of intake interview with the student was, can this kid do what I do? Can this kid do what I do? Because to be a disciple of a rabbi was not just to follow the rabbi in his teachings. 
but it was to follow the rabbi in everything that he did. So you would mimic him in the way he walked. You'd mimic him in the way he talked. You'd mimic him in the way that he ate his food. You'd mimic him in his prayers. You would follow this guy until he believed that you were at a place where you had essentially become him. And then he would give you the command, go and make more disciples. This is how things were done. And so we go back to Jesus. And so here Jesus, Jewish rabbi, he's walking down the shore, the son of God. And where does he begin to find his disciples? He doesn't have people applying to him. Instead, he goes and he begins with an invitation. And he tells them, come, follow me. And that's what you would hear if you applied to a rabbi and you had passed all his tests. He would finish by saying, come, follow me. And so when we understand this, James and John, Paul and Silas, they, they had not, they had not, they were not the best of the best. Sure, they had memorized Torah. They had probably memorized most of the Old Testament parts of the law. They were, they were proficient. But they're with their dad. And they're fishing. So that means that they've taken up the family trade. They weren't going to pursue scholarship. And these are the guys that Jesus seeks out. Just normal, everyday guys. He says, hey, come, follow me. And he does this. He does this 12 times. 12 times. He just comes to regular people. He even comes to a tax collector who in this society was like the worst of the worst because you had sided with the empire and enforced outrageous taxes on your people and then stole from your people. And Jesus comes to Matthew and he says, hey, come, be my disciple. Matthew's not even living a righteous life. Jesus isn't looking at their character. He's not looking at their education. He just begins with an invitation that says, come and follow me. And in this period, that would have been significant because these normal guys, these guys that wouldn't have made it, that knew that they probably couldn't make it as a disciple, to have a rabbi come and say, come follow me, meant that that rabbi believed in them. That rabbi believed that they could become who they were. And this is significant for the disciples of Jesus. This is where you get the boldness of Peter to go and do some crazy things. This is where we get the boldness for the disciples, where they believe that they're going to take over the Roman occupation and found a new kingdom. It's because their rabbi used languages like the kingdom of God is coming. And it will be an eternal kingdom. And they had these kind of already prophecies and illusions of grandeur where they were going to take over. They were going to become their own nation. They thought this was it. And this ragtag group of people were going to be the people that God used to accomplish that goal. But the goal that God was accomplishing was much, much bigger because what we see is that the disciples are trained and they're taught by Christ. And they follow him wherever he goes. And then what we find is that Jesus dies and he's resurrected. And then as he's about to ascend into heaven, he gives them the great commandment. He says, go and make disciples. He even tells them, I believe that you're going to do greater things than me. This is classic 
rabbinical discipleship language that says, you've got this. I believe in you. But bigger than that is that Jesus then sends his spirit to come at Pentecost. And this is when the discipleship really gets rolling because these men could not do it on their own. The discipleship that distinguished the disciples and created a worldwide movement for Christ versus any other disciple that came before was that the Holy Spirit came and lived and breathed and empowered those men at those times. And so at Pentecost, we see that this proclamation and this invitation to become disciples isn't just for the few that Jesus kind of walks up on a beach to and says, hey, come follow me. But the invitation is now for everybody. The invitation is now for us that we can go and become Jesus' disciples. And that he is calling out to us and he's inviting us this morning with the same command that he gave these guys on the boat and that is just come. Come, follow me. And we should be ready to drop everything and go. And so that's kind of the invitation piece is that Jesus begins with invitation, but he doesn't end there. He transitions then once these disciples are invited or they feel this kind of like sense of belonging, this sense of community amongst one another, he then begins with challenge. And this is where we move from belonging to becoming, where we move from invitation to challenge. And so the way that rabbis would challenge their students is that they would begin to ask them questions. They would challenge them in question form. And we see that throughout the scriptures that Jesus is a master of asking questions. He's asking questions to the disciples. He's asking questions to the Pharisees. He's asking questions to the crowds. And then oftentimes he'd then explain his questions. Sometimes he would just drop a question and leave. This is very typical of a rabbi. To let people kind of scratch their heads and figure it out. And then later we see Jesus teaching. He would say, hey, you know that question, you know that story that I invited people into over here? This is what it really meant. And so Jesus is constantly challenging his disciples with questions, constantly challenging his disciples with new teaching, constantly challenging the Pharisees with new teachings and new questions. And so he challenges with a question. If we turn to Matthew chapter 16, what we find is kind of this beautiful example of Jesus asking a tough question, of Jesus inviting the disciples into kind of an intimate relationship with him, but then also challenging them with their very lives. And so Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13. It says this, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea of Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? So here's this question, here's this challenge. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said to him, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So there are a lot of ideas about who this Jesus character is within the society. And then he asks this follow-up question to them. He asks them, but who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter, he says this. He proclaims the gospel right here. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whether you bind it on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whether you loose on earth 
it shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so here we have an invitation. Here, Jesus, he challenges them with this question of like, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Peter gets it right. And then Jesus invites them into deep community by saying, Peter, on this church, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And now this word church in this period did not mean church like we think of it today. It does not mean like where we come and worship and we gather. It just meant assembly. And there were multiple assemblies at this time that met for, multi- for a multitude of reasons, just like we have a bunch of assemblies that meet today. I mean, you've got Lions Club, you've got different community assemblies, you've got assemblies back in school. I mean, it was just, the term was just, on this rock I will build my assembly, Jesus said. So it's just a, kind of like the assembly of Jesus Christ. And he says, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And then he uses kind of this legal language that says, with these keys, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven, and whatever be bound on earth will be bound in heaven. And this would also be key to the cultural understanding of what it was that you would serve as a disciple under a rabbi, because at this time, the disciples ultimately became the scribes. And so when you read in your text, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes are people who had kind of graduated from rabbis. They are the professional readers of the text. And so it makes sense that Jesus is establishing, at least in Peter's mind, that with him, he's establishing this assembly that was going to work with legal reasons. Because in this day, when you had a fight, when you had a legal dispute in the community, you would go to the assembly. You would go to the scribes and you would sort it out there. They were the legal experts of the day. And so here it sounds like Jesus is giving Peter this incredible kind of legal authority. What Peter doesn't understand in this moment is that Jesus is actually founding what we know to be the church today. That he's founding so much, something so much bigger than any type of legal assembly that it will become an assembly like none other that they've ever experienced before, that it will actually become an assembly of living disciples of Jesus Christ, where we live together in community, where we serve together in community, where we help the poor in community. I mean, this idea, this imagination of what the church is would blow Peter's mind in this moment. But this is how Jesus meets Peter right where he's at, and he begins to let Peter know kind of the imagination that Jesus has for him in the future, on that day in Pentecost when Peter stands up and he actually founds the church through the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people come in conversion that day. And so that's what's going on here. I just want to say, I just wanted to clear that up just because I think sometimes we wonder like, man, why did the disciples get it so wrong around Jesus' death? And I just want you to see that the language that Jesus is using like kind of almost leads them into that end. They really don't understand the spiritual realities that are going on, these very common words in their day. And we see that this misunderstanding happens because as soon as Jesus tells them, hey, Peter, on this rock I'm going to build my church. Gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. Jesus then, in verse 21, he says, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it, Lord, 
This shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not seeking your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so right here, Jesus exposes Peter's earthly, flawed thinking about what Jesus just told him about becoming the church and the body of Christ. And then we see in verse 24, and this is where the greatest challenge comes. So we have this question, we have invitation to come in, we have invitation towards the secret that Jesus is the Christ, and now we have a challenge. And it's the, the challenge of all challenges. And it says this, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is what it looked like to be a disciple. Because when Jesus says that he's got to go in front of the scribes and he's got to suffer many things and die, as a follower, one, you don't want to see your rabbi die. There's just kind of that emotional thing going on there. Two, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You believe he's the Christ. You believe he's the thing that's going to rescue you from this political mess that you find yourself in. You don't want your leader to die. Then the movement dies, right? And so there's kind of these two emotional things going on. But then three, as a disciple, that could also mean that you might have to follow your rabbi to the point of death as well. Because normally when they executed a leader, they executed all the followers as well. And this is why after the crucifixion of Jesus, you find the disciples running scared for their lives. Because they believe that they are next. And so there's kind of this emotional response to the leader, but there's also kind of this self-preservation thing going on. But Jesus is saying deeper and much more spiritually is that if we're going to be his disciple, he's going to invite us to share in the same things that he has shared in. And the message for the church today is that he is calling us to follow him and to lay down our lives. To lay down our earthly and fleshly dreams like Peter has with the church and begin to see the greater reality of what Jesus is trying to accomplish through us and in us. And this is where we become. It's in this challenge where we become the disciples that Jesus has wanted us to be. And so the question is, is now that we've looked at these texts, what does this invitation and challenge, what does this belonging and becoming look like for us? And so I think we have to start with Jesus, where Jesus started, and that's at a place of high invitation, where we invite people in, where we invite people into this community, where we invite each other into our homes, where we invite each other into our personal space, where we do a little bit of intimacy and vulnerability with one another. Because this is what it looked like to follow Jesus as his disciples, that they shared everything together. It's not a surprise in Acts chapter 2 where we read that the whole church shared everything and had everything in common because that's what disciples did. There was a treasurer and he kind of dealt out the dough, both literally and figuratively, so that everyone could eat, so everyone could survive. And so what we see in Acts chapter 2 is this kind of explosion of the model where Jesus is still the leading rabbi and where everyone's a disciple together just sharing with one another. There's a high level of invitation. And I think we do invitation well. The next thing, though, is that there has to be challenge. 
The second part of that is that Jesus doesn't just invite his disciples to come and have a nice, cozy party. But he, he's there to mold them, he's there to shape them, and he's there to challenge them. And the way that he often challenges, like I said before, is with questions. And this is where we can talk about becoming. We can talk about belonging and invitation. We can talk about becoming in this challenge. And it's in this becoming where we begin to ask this question, what is God saying to you? What is God saying to you right now? And what are you going to do about it? And so it's an invitation to listen, to hear from God, to allow Jesus to still be the rabbi in our life, to still be the person that teaches us. We don't need to go to other gurus, to other masters, to other teachers, but we need to go to the teacher and hear from him and submit ourselves to him. We don't need to make disciples of ourselves, so we don't need to teach ourselves, but we need to make disciples of Christ. And so we point people to Christ, and we ask them to hear from God and to hear from his spirit. What is he asking you to do? What is he saying? And we bring that up to next to the word of God, and we make sure that, like, that it's from the spirit and that it aligns with the word of God. Because if they're like, hey, I think the Holy Spirit and that God is telling me to do this thing, like way over here, way off base, that doesn't match up with this, we don't like just go on with that and say, oh yeah, you pursue that. We say, wait, I don't know if that's actually the word of God speaking to you. I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you because we have to submit the Holy Spirit to the Holy Spirit's word that comes from the Bible. And that's where the challenge comes in. That's where we ask these questions. This is where we're in community together and we ask, what is God saying and what are you going to do about it? And sometimes the question is, I don't know. And instead of just staying in this place of high invitation, we need to move into a place of higher challenging and say, well, what do you mean you don't know? What do, you, what do you think God is actually getting at? What else is going on below the surface? Because what I found is that oftentimes when God speaks to me about one thing, and he's trying to get my attention about one thing, really what I need then is I can like see the surface of it and be like, okay, I need to make this change in my life. And then I'll go about trying to make that change on my own. But if I bring that into community and I bring that into a place where challenge is invited, and where that begins to be questioned, well, why do you think that God is calling you to change that? Oftentimes, my answer is, well, I don't know. And they're like, well, you should think about that. And so I think about that, and then I'm like, all right, I think this is why God is changing that. And they're like, okay, what's deeper? What's below that, even? Why do you think he's asking you to do that if you think that he's asking you to do that because of this? And you're like, ah. Oh. And this is where real discipleship begins to happen. This is where we begin to understand who we are, and our need for Christ, and where we can allow Christ to come into the very broken intercessions of our heart and begin to heal them. I believe that this is the model of discipleship that Jesus has had for us. And if you go through the Gospels, last week I challenged you guys to write some worship songs. And from what I've heard from some of you throughout the week, you guys have actually started to do that. And that is super Super exciting to me that you guys have started to like put down pen to paper, words of adoration, and bowing down towards our God. That's amazing. This week, a little bit bigger task. Maybe you just start in the book of Matthew or the book of Mark, something short. But I want you to go through and I want you to begin to observe in your Bible reading time places where Jesus brings invitation and then challenge. And how this is a model that, that reproduces itself all the time. Invitation and challenge. One of my favorite places of invitation and challenge in the Bible is the woman at the well. 
not the woman at the well, sorry, the woman caught in adultery. This woman caught in adultery. She's brought out before the people. And they're like, hey, Jesus, what should we do? And he's like, he who sinned, you know, he who has no sin, cast the first stone. And they all start dropping their stones. And so he invites the woman in and he forgives her her sins. But then he challenges her and he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't just live in this place of high invitation, but he also responds with a place of high challenge. Now, oftentimes where I feel like we err in our discipleship is that we end up erring on one of those two ends. We either end with a high invitation, and where things are high invitation, things get really cozy. It's like, hey, we accept you for who you are. We're glad that you're here. Here, have a brownie. Here, have a glass of milk. We hope you come back again. Here, have a brownie. You know, have a glass of milk. Things are great. I'm glad that we're friends. High invitation says, puts a smile on, says everything's good, everything's great, everything's cozy. Oh, you have a problem? Well, why do you think God's saying to you, saying, speaking to you about that thing? I don't know. Okay. Well, hope that works out well for you. That's a high invitation place. And that's not where discipleship happens. The second place that we err is a high challenge place. And it's where we say we have to do, 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 do and accomplish a bunch of things for God. That the only way that God's going to be really happy for us and with us is if we do all of these things that we know that we ought to do in the first place. And we get really burnt out. We get really frustrated. And we kind of get stressed. I know that I've dealt with this in my own spirituality. I have the stress of God. Like, man, what is God thinking of me right now? What is God thinking about the things that I just did last week? Maybe that's why my week is going poorly. And we put ourselves in this very high challenge place. You know, like, next week's going to be better. And I'm going to conquer next week. And then we end up falling again. And we end up with this very high-stressed view of God because we live in this place of just high challenge all the time. And that's not discipleship either. The place where discipleship happens is where there is high invitation and high challenge together, where there is a high level of belonging and a high level of becoming. That is where true discipleship happens, where the whole person is taken account, where there is vulnerability, where there is transparency, where there is accountability, kind of some naughty, dirty, uncomfortable words. And they are, unless those words are covered in love. And love is a necessary key and element if we're going to do discipleship well. If we're going to invite and if we're going to challenge and if we're going to love well. And what I also want to give us is that in this place of challenge, every once in a while, sure, we need somebody to come across with us with a two-by-four and just be like, boom, you need to knock that off. I would say that those times are very, 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 very rare. And that if we want to position ourselves as the high-challenge guy, we might need to take a step back. Now, I'm not saying that we take a step back from high-challenge, but what I'm saying is that we don't need to create disciples of ourselves. We need to make disciples of Christ. And so we need to invite people to Christ, and then we need to invite people to hear the challenge that Christ has already given them. And the best way that we do that is to follow Jesus' example of asking questions. Just keep asking questions. Because God will give them the answer. God will make them squirm. God will give them the challenge. 
And what they need to hear is not from you, but from Jesus. And so let's not forget that, that we're here to make disciples of Christ, that we're here to hear from Him, that we're here to be led by His Spirit, that we're here to put ourselves in submission to His rule and His authority as His disciples. And we do that by being His disciples and encouraging one another. And so what we need to do is we need to ask questions, then we need to give courage. To encourage someone, oftentimes in our society, means to give kind of affirmation. Be like, hey, you did great. Pat on the back. Like, like that's what encouragement is. That's how we see it. But when I talk about encouragement, I mean to give courage. Because the things that Jesus is going to challenge us with, it's going to require courage. It's going to be difficult. And instead of changing our prayers and making our prayers about ways in which we can sidestep discomfort and challenge and suffering in our life, we need to make our prayers about how can I have the courage? How can I have the faith in Jesus in you that you will grow me through this? That you will get me through this time of high challenge, this time of high suffering? And that I'll be a better disciple because of it. So I think these are the things of what it looks like to become a disciple. This is what discipleship looks like. And so discipleship, guess what? It's not going to be a program. It's not necessarily a program. Sure, we have discipleship groups. Sure, we have places where we are trying to facilitate discipleship or we're trying to grow in facilitating discipleship. But true, authentic, real discipleship together is just going to happen naturally in community with one another. And we just need to get comfortable by having a higher level of invitation, I think, towards challenge, and also a higher radar to be able to challenge and ask probing questions that might be uncomfortable, but ones that are tested by the Holy Spirit and ones that actually lead that person to hear from God and not from you. This is what discipleship looks like. And so this morning, I hope that you hear an invitation from Jesus more than anything, that you hear this invitation from Jesus this rabbi, this Lord, this Christ, this Messiah, the Son of God. I hope that he's walking down the beach in your life and he's saying, hey, come follow me. It's okay that you're not a scholar. It's okay that you don't know everything. He actually would probably prefer it if you didn't. That way he could teach you and mold you. Employees at Epic know this well. Epic doesn't want you to know anything when you come in because they want to disciple you into the epic way. They have their own language that no one else uses in programming. They don't want you to know anything. I believe that Jesus is in that same place. The less you know, probably the better off you are for it. Because the more you can hear from him, the more you can follow him. And so hear his voice this morning that's saying, come, follow me. Also hear his voice that says, I love you and I believe in you. I believe that you can do greater things than this. And then finally, I hope that you hear his challenge. That you hear his challenge, that is, come and lay down your life and take up your cross and follow me. I think that's the place where we need the most courage. I think that's the place where we need one another and where we need to pray for one another, where we need to continually be challenged and hear that. 
So that's what I hope that we walk away with this morning, is that we allow the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to move our response as disciples of him. Would you guys pray with me? Dear Lord God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time that we have to come together to learn from you and the ways that you look to mold us and shape us by your Spirit. God, we are nothing without you. We are nothing without your Holy Spirit within us. God, we cannot do discipleship on our own strength, on our own accord. God, we cannot do this alone. God, number one, we need you. So God, I just pray that we would respond to the gospel this morning and your invitation to come and follow you. God, that we would rededicate our lives to your mission, to your cause, that we would hear your voice afresh again that's saying, come and know me. God, may our hearts know you. And God, I just pray that we would also respond to challenges in your life, that when things become uncomfortable, that we would not balk, that we would not run away, that we would say, nope, don't want to be this disciple thing anymore, but God, that we would humbly submit and just ask for courage. And God, we pray that you would give us courage right now for the challenges that we're going to face this week, that we're going to face this next hour, throughout the rest of this day, God. God, we need your love and we need your courage. God, may you continue to grow us as a church and as a people and to the people of you in your body. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Worship and communion, you can take communion on both sides.